expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. We're back once again with episode 156 of the Down and Nerdy podcast, where, Nick, we promise that we're not going to give our listeners teaser trailers and then trailers before we get to the actual show. Can you imagine if we recorded these shows, but like on Thursdays, we would release like the teaser, like the soundbite for the podcast instead of the teaser for the teaser trailer. It's a soundbite for the, for the podcast, and it's like just five seconds of us introducing each other and stuff like that and that's it we do the soundbite on wednesday and then the full trailer for the show on thursday (laughs) before the show comes out on friday right it's the podcast for the podcast for the podcast (laughs) by the way before we get into that i'm james with him alongside the Merc with Warm, Nick Metaglin. you know we're gonna dive into spider-man homecoming later on in nerd news but yeah man it's just it's a lot a lot of trailers that are happening man it's just it's so much it's too many i'm not saying that i don't like trailers i don't like the fact that we get a teaser for a trailer that's going to be coming out in the next 48 hours and then you've got the tv spots and the teaser for the teasers and you know the little 10 second looks to tell you that there's going to be a teaser and i mean enough yes i want to know what's going to be happening in justice league and spider-man homecoming and blade runner 2049 yes but you know what 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 happened to giving leaving us wanting more? You know what I mean? It's like yeah. you got to have sixty. Tri- now when they did it with Guardians, the first Guardians movie, I understood it. You know, unknown property kind of right, thing like that. Right. You know, as far as you know, the mainstream people go, and you know, only deep comic book Marvel fans would really know what that is. Yada yada yada. But now we're doing it with everything, and it's like enough already. Right. It's it's a lot. I mean, you know, when you're when I'm scrolling through social media, and I'm seeing like. The here's teaser footage for Blade Runner's teaser, and, and it's like and it's, that's the thing is it's not just like one movie. There was times where it's like multiple movies doing multiple teasers at the same time, pretty much. And it's like, oh my god, you know, it's right. it, it, it's your trailer that I'm gonna end up seeing in a theater, and it's like, guys, there's YouTube. Like, it's not like nobody's gonna watch your teaser trailer. You know, it's like it's like I want you just want to like go to Marvel or just and just be like, listen, listen. You're going to make hundreds of millions of dollars on Spider-Man, okay? Right. There's no reason for the teaser for the teaser trailer. Right, like, I love Star Wars, and you know Star Wars is going to make a ridiculous amount of money no matter what it is. You don't need 60 trailers for Star Wars. I'm sorry. It just doesn't need to happen. It gets to the point now where sometimes I actually avoid some trailers because... A lot of times now they're putting the best parts of some of these movies in the damn trailer. And you know, James, speaking of movies, this week marks a very huge milestone for us as this week is our first time we are working with a big movie studio to help promote a new movie. Of course, the movie of that being Paramount Pictures' Ghost in the Shell, which is out right now, and Chin Han is going to be on this week's show to promote the movie. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, man, we're going to talk to him about what it was like to play Togusa and, you know, bringing the movie to life for the first time in live action and as far as here in the States go. I mean, it's going to be really, really neat to just kind of dive in there and get his perspective on that. Yeah, James, I can't wait to dive into that world of Ghost in the Shell. But speaking of diving into worlds, we're going to be diving into two new worlds this week 
as we dive into two new comics that are out. Stay tuned. What we're reading is coming up next. My name is uh, Liam Sharp. I draw Wonder Woman. I co-founded Mayfire, and I'm a dear and close friend of the Down and Nerdy podcast. Well, nerds, it's time we pull out our long boxes and discuss what we're reading this week. And James, you know, one of the big stories we talked about recently was the fact that, hey, DC Comics and Hanna-Barbera, those two worlds are going to be merging with some pretty awesome comics. And, of course, I'm reviewing one of them this week, and it's one that really caught my attention. As everybody knows, I'm a huge Green Lantern fan. He's my favorite DC Comics characters. But... One of my other favorite characters, and I'll have nerd them, and I have to do it this way, Space Ghost! I'll say this quickly about Space Ghost. I have a Space Ghost pop figure, and when I sent James a picture of, like, look at what I got, his response was, and this is literally his response, you son of a bitch. Yeah, and I, I used to watch the old Space Ghost cartoons back when I was younger and everything, so, I t- and I'm not talking about Space Ghost Coast to Coast, by the way. That I mean, that's fine and all, but I'm talking right. about the, the original Space Ghost cartoons that I used to watch, so I have always been a huge fan of Space Ghost. When I saw Green Lantern Space Ghost, I think I texted you in all caps, look what they just sent us! Right, exactly, man. I was so excited. And this book is written by none other than James Tyne IV and Christopher Sabella. Art is done by Ariel Olivetti, and the colors are done by Ariel as well. And letters are done by a larger world studios. And I just got to start with this before I get into the story. Last week I reviewed Iron Fist, the comic, and I talked about how beautiful that art was. This art tops it. Ooh, now I'm excited. Really, and here's why. The way that Olivetti not only draws the characters, but there's the, the credits page is Green Lantern flying through space. First of all, the colors are beautiful and they're hypnotizing, but the detail and just the look of the character has that feeling of classic and modern. It's that beautiful mix like, this looks like, okay, like an art house. Put it this way. It looks like kind of like an art house poster. Oh, I'm going to dress in all black and get out the turtleneck then. Exactly, man. I mean, it's just, it's beautiful. This this book, the way the characters look, the way that the, just the lighting is done in this, it's so amazing. And when you have Space Ghost and, and Hal Jordan, Green, the Green Lantern, you know, using their, their gauntlets and their rings, and it's just the beams that are flying out of them are just so beautifully well done. It's that again, it's that mix of of kind of something you've seen in the kind of modern DC things in terms of just it, the thickness of the, the linings and stuff like that, with the kind of classic just look that kind of like thick look. Like these are characters that have a lot of weight to them, I'll say, and dimension in terms of dimensions. And there's a part where. In the story, basically, it's these it's these two characters, of course, and they're answering this distress call on a planet about this weapon. Now, I don't want to go into detail of what the weapon is because there's a nice little thing that they do with that. But pretty much when they arrive on this one planet, I don't know, and this is how great the art is. I don't. It looks to the point where like they literally took a stock photo of a forest and put it in the background. Like that's. Like, it looks, it has that sense of realism. So it's like, it's one of those things where, like, my mind, I'm trying to decipher, like, is it 
really a forest? Like, is it like somebody took a photo and just put the characters, overlay them over the forest picture? Or is the art just really that amazing? I think it's the latter of the two. And at the beginning of this book, again, they both are answering this distress call. And let's just say another corpse member of a different corpse makes an appearance. I'll just say that. And it involves a battle between Space Ghost and Hal Jordan. And, of course, one of Space Ghost's most famous antagonists shows up as well. And and his design is amazing. And it has a little bit of a different take than what you're normally used to. And, of course, you have that, that kind of meet cue of, of heroes and sense of, like, they don't know who they are. And they think that, you know, they're both the weapons and they're the threats. So you get this awesome battle. And it's a long fight. I mean, this thing stretches pages. This book is about just the story in general because there's two stories, one involving a, a different Hanna-Barbera character. But this story is about 29 pages. And uh, I would say at least for the first 10, you're getting nothing but battle. Nice. And it's awesome. And, I mean, these guys are just going after each other. They're using their gauntlets and their, their ring in, in various unique ways. And it's just – it has a nice sense of like, okay, there's a reason why these people are fighting – and it's not like, you know, okay, I've seen this a million times, you know. It, it's, it has a nice, unique freshness to it. And pretty much, there's just, just without going into too much details because it will be spoiling the book, there are some threats that come along the way. And there's a certain belief structure that's on this planet that kind of hinders the, some of the characters. Not in a bad way, but just kind of like, you know, the, the think of like the thought of like an outside world and thinking that they're all alone when really they're not. You know, this this book has nice unique layers in terms of the storytelling like you have the kind of rivalry between space ghost and hal jordan and the banter between them is very rivalry like throughout the entire book like they're one-lining each other they're kind of trying to show off against one another and stuff like that uh overall this is a book that i just loved and it's a long read there's a lot of word bubbles a lot of dialogue to it but it's the, it does not drag it down because the story unravels like an onion where, again, you have this kind of battle in the beginning of the book and then you get further into like around page 10 and then there's like this whole other storyline involving these people on this planet and just the planet itself. And then you have, you know, that kind of finale, that reveal there of another big battle that's happening. And it just, it really culminates to a nice book. And it really is one of those things of like, I want more of this. I want more Space Ghost Green Lantern. I think that DC and Hanna-Barbera have stumbled onto something wonderful with this. This is a definite pull for me, man. I mean, this this book is something you have to read. If you're Whether you're a Hanna-Barbera fan or a DC fan or both, this is something that needs to be on your bookshelf or on your computer if you download it digitally. This is something that jumped right out at me when I saw it in the list of things that were coming out, and I wanted to read it so bad, and I'm so glad that it lives up to those expectations. And the great thing about the writing between Sabella and Tynan is just the the fact that like there's so much there's some, a good amount of seriousness in this book, and then there are certain lines of dialogue, just certain photos, and the way that again Hal Jordan uses his ring that really makes you laugh. So it's it's not just serious all the time. Like we need to you know sit you know answer this distress call. It's like let's answer this this distress call. But let's also like have some fun in the process. So I like that. Right. I really like that. And, and you really believe the chemistry between the two characters. So what would you do this week, buddy? Well, I couldn't help myself. You know, it's, like you said, you saw what was coming out this week. And I saw that the Stalinverse finale from Valiant and Divinity 3 was out this week. You know 
that I wasn't going to pass up the chance to review this one more time on the show, of course, written by the great Matt Kent, Trevor Harston. Harrison does the uh, does the pencils. Two inkers on this book: Ryan Wynn and Allison Rodriguez. Two colorists as well: David Barron and Alan Pasquela. Sorry if I butchered your name there, Alan. That's just what I do on this show. And letters <laughs> by Dave Landfear. Now I will say this: I do have to give you a couple spoilers for the last issue because it's going to be really hard not to spoil <laughs> this finale issue because of something that literally happens in the first two pages. So, so pretty much your dancing skills are not up to par, and they, they would not do you any good in this situation. Oh, we're, 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 we're going to be doing a little bit of tap dance and Gene Kelly style for sure on this one because it's going to be difficult to not spoil it. But as you know, if you read uh, the last issue, issue three, is that Casimir uh, has basically been a parasite inside of Mishka this whole time kind of pulling the strings of this whole thing, and you see him basically rip Abram Adams' head clean off of his shoulders. Which, you know, he was kind of the key to this whole thing. Yeah. Getting things back to the way it was supposed to be. I mean, so you I go, mean... well, shit, what are you going to do now? I mean, his name was Divinity, and that's what the book is called, so it's kind of like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, so a little bit of a problem there, but let's just say uh, life finds a way. And uh, I remember when Tom Waltz was on the show, yeah. and he said, it's comics, man. Yeah. That's all I'm going to say. So, uh, basically, the first part of this book is dealing with everyone that's had their mind warped by this whole alternate reality that they've built here in, in Divinity 3, and you kind of go one by one, and there's one moment where it's it's a member of the Harbinger crew. Right. And there's a moment right there that, that's that's kind of a touching moment and kind of like a Goodwill Hunting-ish kind of moment, too, where it's not your fault kind of thing. So, I mean, that, that's really interesting that they do that. But then, of course, who did we see in one of the very first issues of this? Yes, Vladimir Putin does make a return appearance because, you know, he is the president of pretty much the entire world at this point in this in this Stalin verse. Is so, he shirt, is he shirtless and riding a bear in this? He's not shirtless and riding a bear, the decked out in a suit, you know, fortunately or unfortunately depending on what your perspective is on that. But you know, just as any, you know, tyrannical leader is, you know, he wants more and that's part of also what this story is about. So he kind of rallies the troops, you know, that we saw fighting against uh, Ninjak and the crew in the last issue. He sort of kind of rallies them and says, here's what we're going to do. We want more. And that's when the battle really, really starts. You always know in anything like this, there's going to be that final showdown. Now, right. Who's in the final showdown is very, very interesting. And as a matter of fact, there's a very interesting turn in this book as well that kind of shifts the tide into one direction or the other. And then the battle sort of shifts between the larger battle and kind of branches off into a smaller battle between two of the characters. Again, I don't want to tell you who they are because I don't want to basically ruin the very beginning of this book. So I cannot <laughs> tell you who the battle is between. All I can say is you see a battle. It gets pretty funky towards the end of the battle as well. And then they kind of, based on that aftermath, wrap everything up into a nice little bow. And we were talking about teasers earlier, but this one actually matters. The end of this book gives you a tease, a very, a very small tease of what's 
next in this sort of world, or at least that it appears that this is going to be what's next. So we always said, you know, okay, we love the way that they've told the Divinity storyline. So once this ends, what's next for this? And all I know is, based on what I saw at the end of this book, there's a plan. So this pretty much is something that you think could span maybe the whole rest of this year or maybe even further, do you think? Here's something, too, I want to ask you, too. Could this be something where, you know, Valiance has their movie universe getting ready to, you know, roll out or announcing plans for other movies? Could could this be kind of like a culmination event, you know, kind of like they're Avengers? I could totally see them. I could totally see them doing that as this is their first big team up type movie. I mean, of course, you've got the first two books from Divinity that you could still do. So even further down the line, if they wanted to eventually, because Divinity, I'm not going to lie, dude, if they decided to do Divinity 1 as a movie, that's going to be a huge budget, and that's going to cost a lot of money. So, hey, Harbinger, Bloodshot, you guys uh, need to be successful so we can get a Divinity movie at some point and get this story arc moving, because I think that this is something that could really work on the screen, actually. It would be so beautiful. I mean, just like the art in this book is absolutely beautiful, which you come to expect in this Divinity series, if you've heard us talking about it on the show before. The use of colors. You could see why they needed two colorists in this book, especially during one of the final battles and where they take it. And shading is really important in this book, too, which is which is very interesting and kind of gets pushed off to the wayside, especially when you're talking about colorists. The shading in this book, especially in the final few pages... Very, very important. And again, it's. I'm sorry to be so cryptic here, but I mean, do you want me to ruin the finale of such a great series for no, you, or don't you? Don't do it. You know, I'm not gonna do it because there, there's so many things that matter. And and if anything, I, I wanted more. You know, I kind of, I almost wish there was a fifth issue because I wanted a little bit more. And that's not even a criticism. That's just me being greedy and not really wanting the storyline to end because it's been so, so good. So. Obviously, I'm gushing about this. So this is a pull. If you don't have the issues, go find them at your local shop. Get them digitally. If you want to do the trade, I'm saying there's probably going to be like a deluxe hardcover version. This is one of those things where you splurge and you get the deluxe hardcover. Plus, I love the notes that that Matt has at the end talking about the art and how they, you know, kind of shifted all the panels and, and how the art was done and how beautifully the story was putting together put together. I love that stuff, so I hope that they put that in the hardcover trade because, man, I loved Divinity from the beginning, but this third one, I must say this right now, probably the best major story arc that I've read in the last five years. Wow. It's that good. As far as, like, putting everybody together into one arc like that and, and telling a huge story, you know, like a la a, uh, a, a secret empire that Marvel's going to be doing kind of thing like that. As far mm-hmm. as a major main story arc, this is one of the best ones I think I've ever read. Best in the last five years for sure. And the great thing about the Stalinverse with Divinity, the way that they kind of structured it and Matt structured it, talk about Matt Ken, of course, uh, the way that he structured it, it kind of had a feeling of this is like, kind of Valiant's version, a little bit of Civil War. And you actually felt like, a lot of the times, like, how the hell are they going to get out of this? And right. this could right. end badly. Right, because, and that's what was great, is that every issue you went into, and I went into, had a sense of unpredictability. Just like, again, the, the way that the previous issue before this one ended. You're, that came out of nowhere. That was like, 
oh my god they just did that yeah and, and, and there's callbacks to that by the way in right. this last issue and that's the thing too is important is the callbacks that they make in this series you care about them not only that but you know with the volumes of comics that you and i read each week you know sometimes information can get lost but when they do those callbacks you're like oh i remember that like you know it's mm-hmm. just like it sticks in your brain you know And you make it matter, too. That's one of the things I loved about this book, too. They made everything matter. They didn't shove anything down your throat. They didn't drag anything out. They made every single moment matter. And when you're doing a big arc like this, and you're trying to tell this huge story, you have to do that. And they did it so, so well in this series. And that's going to do it for what we're reading. Coming up next, it's Morphin' Time. That's right. Our review of Power Rangers is coming up next on the Down Nerdy Podcast. This is Karen Ashley from Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, I think it's safe to say that this is a movie that at least one of us was very, very much looking forward to ever since it was announced. So, yep, like Nick said, it's Morphin Time because we're going to talk about the, I think it's safe to call it a reboot or relaunch of it's the a reboot. Power Rangers franchise that happened this week. And uh, I got to tell you, man. I, uh, I'm very curious to see what you think about this. I'm sure everybody else is as well. Well, before we get to what I thought about this, because, of course, I'm such a huge Power Ranger fan. Again, as I said on multiple shows, it's my favorite franchise in all of geek culture. I, I love it to death. But before we dive into that and the movie itself, you and I – now, I saw this twice – you and I saw it recently together, which was my second time seeing the movie. Going into this, seeing how you were more the person who grew up with the Masters of the Universe, you grew up with Transformers, you know, you grew up with that era of the 80s and stuff like that. Having not grown up with Power Rangers, because I believe by the time Power Rangers came out, and I'm not making a joke here, you must you had to be at least around like 13, 14 years old. I was, yeah, it, I was well it came out in my ni- teens, yeah. Because it came out in 93, like it debuted in 93. Yeah, I was, well, I was, I was, I was 14, so. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely so, something that kind of passed me by. Right, so having not grown up with this and seeing this movie, you know, outside of the horse, of course, the 90s version, Seeing this reboot and this darker tone reboot, what was your thoughts going into this? Well, what I obviously didn't want it to be was the full campy version that they had in the '90s, which works for some people. I'm not, and I'm not saying that I don't have those same things in, in the stuff that I grew up with either. Everybody has that thing that was just campy and fun, and you loved it. And you know, for your generation, that was Power Rangers. For me, that was other things. So. I mean, I didn't want that, but then, of course, you saw that fan film that I feel like kind of took it too far. So I wanted that happy medium between the two. I wanted, you know, a movie that was going to be fun, but at the same time took itself a little bit more seriously than its predecessors and something that would, you know, give justice to the characters and actually make the characters matter. So that's kind of what I was looking for going into this and I think that for the most part, we pretty much got that. Yeah, and of course, the synopsis, as James mentioned, is, this is a reboot. So it's a whole reintroduction to all the characters. Of course, the original Power Rangers in terms of their names, you know, Jason, Kimberly, Billy, Zach, and Trini. And basically, the, the synopsis is that Rear Pulsa has come back from what apparently was the dead, basically. And it's a spoiler filled, by the way. And so pretty much, you know, it's the whole evil person comes back. 
kids find the power coins, they become the Power Rangers, and they have to defeat her. That's pretty much the whole entire synopsis in a nutshell. But the way that they do this, and I want to talk about, you, know, you mentioned the, the, the mixture of light and dark. I think one thing that this did really well is capture, like it opens up, and it does something I didn't expect to see, which was, you see Power Rangers die. Yeah, it's like the beginning of the animated Transformers movie. Remember that? When you see just Transformers getting off left and yeah. right, and you're like, oh my god, what's going on? And that's, it wasn't to that quite that extreme, but, I mean, you see people crawling around and clearly dying. It's like, whoa. Yeah, and, and it's insane. And then, of course, if you find out that, hey, Zordon was the first Red Ranger, Rita is, as we... Uh, you know, as and I want to tell, say this as we predicted way back when her picture first came out, yep. and with that first photo of her, and I said she's gonna be the, she's 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 gonna be a former Green Ranger. You watch, and she was she yep. was the first Green Ranger, and so you know you go back to you fast forward from that era, which was you know dinosaur era to uh, today's you know Earth, and pretty much what I loved about this whole story in general was yes it was an origin film but compared to the show the show all the teenagers all the rangers were very much you know they're like oh they're teenagers with attitude but these kids were i kid you not they were like honor students they did you know humanitarian work they were just it was like like i think they spent like one episode where they were in detention but it was for like something that wasn't their fault kind of so really it's like okay these are like good wholesome kids and this, every one of them is messed up one way or the other and has some sort of darkness to them. For and example, in different ways, too, which I love. They, they gave everybody right. their own identity and their own different set of problems. And which made it even better when they all kind of turned face and came together as a team. And the one thing that this movie does is, you know, you have, you know, Jason, who, of course, had his problem was school prank, star football player, gets in a car accident, messes up his knee, and also by him not being able to play football because he has to be in detention, he's suspended, basically. He can't play, so he pretty much loses his future. And also, a second part of his struggle is that his dad was one of those parents where he's like, I had scouts coming! You know, yeah. Great! You know, it's the, the parents' expectations that, hey, this kid's going to probably... Be, I'm saying I'm sa- not saying his dad thought it was a meal ticket, but like... Living He's vicariously like, at the very least. Yeah, yeah. He, I think he was kind of like LeVar balling it a little bit there. Oh! Yeah. <laughs> That's a low blow. <laughs> is, is it really, though? Is it really? No, it's apt. It's apt. And then you have Billy, of course, who is on the spectrum. He's autistic. He also is the child of a now single parent because his dad died you know, in a mining accident. And then Zach, the Black Ranger, you know, in the beginning at first, it's kind of like, wow, Zach's kind of a dick. And then you find out, well, he's a dick and he's acting out because his mom is sick and dying. Yeah, pretty you much. Know? Uh, Naomi Scott, uh, her, the thing, the thing is, with Kimberly, is her problem was, you know, oh, you want, oh, you're just a, a mean person. You know, you just, a, you, you share this naked picture, this, this picture of this girl to this other guy or whomever. But really, when you, when, this is what happened when I saw it the second time. I caught things I didn't catch in terms of the dialogue the first time. And she talked about how she wanted to end her life. So you yep. have Kimberly, who was almost talking about committing suicide. And then, of course, Becky G, who plays Trini. Trini is gay in this movie. And I thought that was great because her family dynamic was there were certain tones of, 
you know, conversion and just, you know, she's like, my parents want me to dress a certain way and have certain friends. Her mom like was a lunatic. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, dude. She but was off the rails. But in the end, that's what makes you care about these rangers. And then you have that moment where they're, like, they're discovering who they are. And they kind of – you see that chemistry being built brick by brick. And that's what I liked about this movie is that you really – there was a certain, you know – wholesomeness to all this and, and really in terms of an origin story this is what you want because none of it felt forced you know it, it just felt like this was really about them and the one thing i liked about this movie too was they did not show them morphed until the third act yeah i want to talk about that because that was kind of my favorite part of the whole movie as a whole not as far as characters but as a whole is that it would have been so easy in a movie like this to get to the point Get them in their suits, watch them yep. having fun, morphing, training, and, you know, the song's playing, and they're kicking things, and it's so fun. No, no, no. They did it almost exactly the opposite of that. They made them earn it. They made them struggle. They made them deal with their struggles, come together as a team, and then, and only then, did they actually clear their heads and were able to morph and do what they needed to do. I think that that was so, so smart to make them earn it and make it matter that much more. So bravo for them for doing that. That's just the brilliance of the writing in this is that, you know, the writing it's written by John Gaddens and uh, Matt Sazama who did the story and the way that this is all done you know, we go back to our Logan review. We talked about how it was so character driven and don't go into it thinking that you're going to get a like, spectacle Go into this movie and expecting a character-driven movie. If you haven't seen it yet, you know, you that's the mindset. You know, you think you can go into this movie and you think it's going to be like the 90s or you can see them morph like within the first 20 minutes of the, sh- you know, the, of the movie. No, it's very character-driven, very character-based. And there are certain things that happen in this movie where, you know, you, you know, I as a viewer not only felt a closer bond to them, I felt a closer bond to these people, to these Rangers, and I had the original cast. And that's and, big. That's big coming from you, being the Power Rangers guy in the show. That's well, because like, well, because again, as you said, they had to earn their morphing ability. They had to earn things. They had struggles. They were flawed. They weren't perfect teenagers. That, you know, but they had to earn each other's respect. Yes. It was more. Yes. Than, it went beyond that. It went beyond them actually having to earn their 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 armor, as it were. It, it they had to earn the, each other's respect and earn and just basically learn respect in general and at the, that age, you know? And, while, and, and the, the way that they depicted certain scenes where they were earning that respect, I want to talk about the campfire scene real quick and going back to Trini being being gay. You know, I love that, especially with her being gay and Billy being autistic because I felt that in that moment when they're sitting out on the fire and, and Billy has other scenes with Jason where this kind of what I'm about to say builds as well. I felt like that was the first time in both their lives where they felt like they belonged. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah. Like they had a purpose in life, and that felt great. I think if you're somebody who who is autistic or has somebody who in your family who is autistic or somebody who is struggling with, the, you know, coming out to your parents or, or just, you know, struggling with your sexuality in general, this is a great movie for for that. You know, and I think and I, my hope is that people see that outside of those two communities and just – 
understand the struggles that they go through, you know? Here's the deal. I want to touch on that a little bit more. First of all, I think RJ Seiler steals the show. Oh my God, yes. He's, he was so, so fantastic and not just playing the, up the uh, the Spectrum part of the character, but just in general, man. He just made this movie. He gave it a levity that was just so, so great. And, and I just loved every scene that he was in, so props to him. I mean, the rest of the cast was great, too. I'm not saying that they weren't, but he just, he stood out to me so much. But there was a scene, and again, spoiler-filled, by the way, so I, I, this is this is a big one. When he comes back to life, okay? Oh, we'll Jesus. We'll talk about that a little bit more. And he hugs Jason. If you know anybody or have had any experience with autism or autism spectrum, hugging is a big deal. Yeah. A huge deal. Physical contact. Is a huge deal. So when he goes up to him and hugs him like that in that moment, I'm like, dude. And what's that's great is bigger that, than people even realize. And what's great is that their friendship was formed. Talking about Jason and Billy, their friendship was formed not only in detention, but Jason sticking up for Billy by bitch slapping the bully. Right. Like, right. He's like, did you? Like he, he's like, did you just slap me? Yes, I did. And I mean, that was hilarious. I mean, everybody, we, when we saw this, everybody was laughing in the theater when that happened, and. Again, there was that, that, that basis. I think also what helped, too, in terms of building that kind of friendship and just the the uh, importance of Jason Scott as a character was the fact that Angel Grove, unlike the fact that in the in the show it was this big metropolitan city, it was like at Los Angeles, basically, It was a, it's a small fishing town. It's a yeah. small crap town in what appears to be, you know, the fishing northwest, the rural northwest, and I liked that. I like that because, again, that gave you the sense of of enclosure, the fact of why these kids are also acting the way they are as well. And that, you know, it adds a certain depth, another level to that. And it's just – I mean it's just really great. And I felt that that was important. And, you know, it was just – it was it was perfect. Right. And it's a pressure – it's the pressure of a everybody knows everybody society. Right. And unless right. you've ever lived in a community like that, it's hard to get it. Like if all you've ever lived in is cities or bigger cities and you don't understand the whole smaller town aspect, it's, it's hard to get it. But that adds actually a little bit of added pressure and gave this story a little bit more depth that I think people might not have even realized. Yeah, man. I mean, you know, just real quick on the Rangers and just that scene with Billy. My God, um, when he gets killed by Rita Repulsa, first of all, my first thought was, I'm going to cry. I'm going to cry. And I ended up crying. Second one was, oh, my God, going back to the intro, the opening of this movie, oh, my God, they're not afraid to kill Rangers. They're not wow. afraid to kill people in this movie. And I think that was important because, again, you find that medium of – light and dark and i felt that that was beautiful and the, and just the song they had playing over it mm-hmm. uh stand by me was 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 i think what added to the tears as well and i mean that's the you're seeing the rangers carry billy and it's just like oh my god and you know like, what they could have brought him back in that moment on the dock too but they didn't they waited right. until they brought him back and the whole you know zordon trying to come through and he makes that choice to bring back Billy instead. So then that kind of and that kind of brought Zordon into the team because let's face it, Zordon was a dick. Yeah, for most he was. Of this movie, he, he was, was a dick. Maybe justifiably so. I mean, you could argue that point, but he was a dick most of this movie. So that was his reach out moment to them, saying, "Okay, I can see you guys are coming together. I'm doing this for you," sort of thing. Right, and you know, speaking of Zordon, of course, his sidekick there, Alpha Five, who. 
I'll admit in the show he was very annoying and, and just, you know, I mean, he added a lot of camp to that show. But Bill Hader, I think, does a great job as Alpha 5 because Alpha 5, where you want to say, you know, Zordon was a dick, Alpha 5 was very much a smartass in this. Mm-hmm. It was so great, though, the way that Hader delivers it. Oh, and- Oh. The way that the moments that he chose for that, I think were really good. Oh, one of my favorite lines that Hater does is when they're talking about the coins and they're like, Yeah, these coins, was, yes, different kids, different color coins, different colored kids. <laughs> <laughs> that was hilarious. I was laughing my I'm ass. I'm sorry. I don't care who you are. That's funny. <laughs> oh my god. I mean I mean, I looked at your face when he just goes, you know, different colors, different kids, different color kids, and you're just your face erupted well, in, in in laughter. It's it's 2017, and I didn't expect that joke in that movie, so that was really funny. I I appreciated that. You know, speaking of and going further into this cast, uh, Rhea Repulsa, I'll say this: the way they treat her in this is totally different than the way she was in the show. I mean, again, she was a former Green Ranger and stuff like that in the movie. I will say this, man. She had some pretty badass moments. There were some parts where I felt like her acting, maybe Elizabeth Banks was too into it. Maybe she was trying to bring out that little campiness from the show's version of Rita. But I will say this. The encounters that she has with the Rangers in this, and I don't care if you can tweet me all you want at this, the way that they treated Rita in this movie Ten times better than any villain in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You know why? Because she was scary as hell at, at times, first of all. And second of all, when she's like eating that heart in that alleyway over that over that fire or whatever, it was like, oh my god, this is like next level freaky the way that they that they portrayed her and and yeah the way and i mean first of all she kills a ranger like we talked about before and the fact that you actually feel like they have absolutely zero chance against her in the beginning you know i mean it's like oh yeah there's no way that this ends well thinking that it probably does but then you never know it she dominates all the scenes that she's in up until the end basically base and that's the thing too is that you know the scenes where she's with the Rangers and are confronting one another, like she's beating the shit out of them. Like they're actually fighting each other and it's, and it's believable, you know, and it's, it's just the way they do it is great. And, you know, I want to talk about the effects real quick in this movie too. Now, another issue I kind of had, it's a small issue, but I still seeing at least a couple of the Zords close up. I'm like, I wish it had more color to them. I wish it had a little bit more defined look. I didn't expect the show version of them but i wish it was more you know you could tell what is what and just stuff like that and and especially with the megazord i wish there was a little bit more color with the megazord but overall the suits and alpha 5's appearance when you see those on the screen you see them moving i have no issues with them whatsoever yeah. and and i would say this the whole iron man thing people are saying oh they just look like iron man they do not look like no, iron they man. don't you know what i'm not i'm just gonna say this quickly I'm not going to go really in-depth to it. And as somebody like you that grew up with the franchise who's not this way, I appreciate that. But anybody who grew up with this franchise, or very similar franchises for that matter, the first look that you see, you need to let it go. Okay, this is a modern time. Things are going to get freshened up. Things are going to look differently in a more modern world. You have to let that original look go. It's always going to be close. Most of the time, close enough. You're never going to get the spandexy plastic helmet look 
in this day and age unless they're doing it because that's the era that they're in at the time. You gotta let those original looks go. Now, if it was 100% completely different and off the rails, I get your argument. But this was close. They looked really good on the screen. Same thing with Alpha 5. You gotta let the original versions of stuff go a little bit. Yeah, and when you get first look at pictures, and especially when it comes to reboots, you have to understand, in most cases, at least in certain cases, when it's moving and it's walking and talking, or you see something on the screen, and it's, again, it's moving and everything else like that, it's going to look ten times better than it's in a still photo. Totally. Oh, absolutely. you you got to be able to give it a chance to actually see it in the manner in which it is supposed to be presented, not just some random Ooh. photograph. What did you think of Goldar? I really didn't have a problem with it. I mean, uh, I wish they would have given him some sort of a face instead of a kind of a the day the earth stood still right. slash Demogorgon look. I mean, I, right. I kind of wish that they could have given it a little bit more. But I mean, as far as the execution, I liked it. The fact that he was all gold, they actually made it make sense. They told you yeah. why he was all gold. So, yeah, he, I thought it was kind of a ha-ha moment when they first talked about it. But made sense once you presented it so he wasn't just like in the show he wasn't just a flying monkey in gold armor you know he was made of gold and i liked that um but i I think that like you know again with this movie what i loved about it was the writing i thought was spot on Uh, i felt that i found that beautiful connection that beautiful mix of of light and 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 darkness to it. it wasn't full dark wasn't too campy it found that nice balance to it I know some people have a problem with the whole Krispy Kreme thing, but you got to understand that this movie had a budget of $100 million, and I bet probably at least 40 or $30 million of it probably came from Krispy Kreme. Hey, you know what? So, it was kind of a humorous moment in the movie, oh, it too. Was. So, it was. I mean, I mean do, do that. Why not do that? Well, because to me, in terms of product placement in movies, they did it the right way, where it wasn't like in tran- the last Transformers movie where it's like, the Beats pill. It's like, there's no reason for you to do it. It's just yeah. showing us the product. Yeah. Whereas with this, it was like actually a part of the story. Like, yeah, the Zeo crystal that keeps like all life together on Earth, it's underneath a Krispy Kreme. <laughs> yeah, it just <laughs> happens to be underneath the Krispy Kreme. No big deal or anything. And that's what's great. Hearing Rhea Repulsa say, Krispy Kreme. And he's like, he's like, it sounds like a magical place. And Billy's like, it is. It's a magical place. <laughs> do you think, do you think Dunkin' Donuts watched that scene where they were smashing their Krispy Kreme going, yes, now is the time to strike an Angel Grove. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But then you see all the boxes with the Krispy Kreme. Then you see all the uh, boxes with the Power Rangers on them, the Krispy Kreme style Donuts with the Power Rangers symbol on it, and Dunkin' Donuts is like, "Damn it!" Krispy yeah, Kreme is like, "We will rebuild an Angel Grove <laughs> <laughs> on the backs of lemon filling. We will rebuild." <laughs> oh God! We will not go silently into the pit. <laughs> we will build. <laughs> Layer by donut glaze filled layer. <laughs> Our baker's dozen will be full once more. <laughs> Make Krispy Kreme great again. <laughs> we're going to build a new location and we're going to make Rita pay for it. <laughs> So get back uh, from space and pick up a shovel. It's gonna be ter- it's gonna be terrific. It's gonna be really terrific. There's gonna be you know cups everywhere. You're gonna be able to get 
as many donuts as you want. The big, hot, fresh sign is going to be there. It's going to be great. It's going to be bright. It's be the best. It's going to be, be hot and fresh all the time. I, I can tell you that they're always pretty hot and fresh. Next thing you know, Krispy Kreme comes out with a book called The Art of the Pastry. <laughs> But in wrapping up with this, let's go to final thoughts and give me your final thoughts first. Okay, so, I mean, the only one small, small problem I kind of had with this movie was the how, how they kind of fell into the Megazord, you know, it falls into the pit where the crystal is, and all of a sudden, oh, by the way, there's a Megazord, and they don't really establish that a whole lot, they don't really talk about it. Again, very, very small thing, that was one issue that I had, but what I loved was how they made them earn it, how they brought them together slowly but surely. They could have rushed so many things in this movie and in a day and age where so many things in so many movies are rushed and made not to matter. They took the gamble, and this was a gamble in the writing. They took the gamble to go the slow route, make it matter, make them earn it, make you care about each one of them individually before you cared about them as a whole. And I applaud them for doing that. Again, a huge, huge risk on their part, especially with the competition that they were up against and continue to be up against at the box office. They told their story. And, and, and again, this is a franchise that's been around for a long, long time with a lot of diehard fans. And I thought they did a good job of telling their story their way and still sticking true to the basis of what the whole Power Rangers thing is all about. So I think that I'm going to go with, let's see, eight stolen cows out of ten. <laughs> now, now you do know they're male cows, right? I, I do. And I would have known from the very beginning, unlike some people. <laughs> if you've seen the movie, you know what we're talking about. Yeah. But... My thoughts on this was, and this is true, I told you just when we were leaving the theater, we were getting in your car and leaving the theater, I said, I cannot watch the, the, the 90s movie ever again, because this just, when you look at both of them, this one is so superior to the other one. Now, I understand the other one is very campy, it's very 90s, you know, and stuff like that, but I just can't. Like, like this is just, there's a certain movies when you see a reboot done so well as this was, where, again... All the Rangers were flawed. They had character issues in terms of just, you know, these weren't honor roll students. These were people with real problems that made you, anybody of any age, really connect with them. And made. And when they finally became a team, they finally morphed. And that's when I cried. I cried when I first saw their suits for the first time. I cried when Billy died. And I cried when I saw the Zords running into action and the theme was running behind it. Because that was just you know, 10 plus years of just childhood erupting through my, through my eyes pretty much. And just, I was so happy. I love what they did with Zordon, how he wasn't just a guy in a tube. He was in a wall and he can move his head around different angles and stuff like that. He wasn't, you know, stuck in one spot. RJ Seiler, phenomenal job. He really, I think, stole the show. So did uh, Dakray Montgomery, who played Jason, really did a phenomenal job. Hell, they all did a phenomenal job, I thought. I love the fact that Rita was played more as a, a, a witch and as more a, in terms of just, you know, a, a serious threat. She wasn't campy. And the fact, I think that what added to it was her being a former ranger. So she knew how Zordon thought. She knew how the Power Rangers would fight and stuff like that because she went through it herself. She has so much, I think, for a villain. I know some people say we didn't get enough of her or whatever. 
Her being a villain, I think, is better than any MCU villain we've seen. And I'll say it's even better, I think, than any DC villain we've seen in terms of the movies so far. Because of what they do with her. And it's just different. And it's fresh. And you make her, you fear her. And you fear that, like, oh, my God, it's somebody who can't, who's not, you know, you go into a battle with this person. And you're like, I'm about to get messed up. Or either I'm going to beat her or I'm going to really get messed up and die. And I like that. Uh, this had just an overall great tone of feeling. And just I love who they cast in this. And overall, as somebody who grew up with this, this is everything I wanted. And I'm not going to lie. I went into this not expecting a whole lot. I kind of expected a little bit something a little bit better than the 90s movie, to be honest. But I was surprised. I was just taken away by it. The fact that the end, the mid credit sequence is teasing the Green Ranger, which I thought and I knew it was going to do, uh, is perfect. I can't wait to see who they cast for Tommy. And I can't wait to see what they do. Because remember, they said also they want to do six movies all together with this. So we got five more coming. I, want, I can't wait, man. I want the sequel right now. I want it right now as badly as I can. I'm giving this. You know what? Fuck it. I'm going to do it. 12 out of 10 power coins. And times right, I cried. You're just going to bust out of the scale and just go right through like a busted Dude, thermometer it, on a cartoon. Dude, it, it was, I thought it was amazing. And maybe part of it was because I grew up with this. This is something that's really close, near and dear to my childhood, near and dear to my heart. But honestly, man, I felt that they really did a great job with this. So, hell yeah, it's going to break that thermometer of our ratings. All right, we'll let you have that one. And that's going to do it for our review of, of Power Rangers. But coming up next, we have some nerd news to get to, including a new Spider-Man trailer and some troubles lying ahead for GameStop. This is Summer Bischel from The Magicians, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, James, it's time to fire up the bat signal because it's time for... Nerd News! And we're firing up the bat signal for a totally different reason this week. Not because of Batman, but because of Batgirl. Yep, and Babs looks like she's going to be coming to the silver screen after all, but not necessarily in a secondary role because it looks like she's going to get her own solo movie and a very... Very familiar name is possibly going to be directing that, and that would be Joss Whedon. And, of course, Joss Whedon, you know, the man who did the Avengers movies, and, and I think I think Joss Whedon really is the main reason why we're still having an, an MCU. Because if it wasn't for Joss Whedon, and if, it, and if the first Avengers movie didn't have the success it had, like, it was going to make box office money no matter what. But if it was panned, like if people didn't like it, we would not have an MCU anymore. Right, we I agree. Because because it's like okay, well, you know, or at least we might have a struggling one. I don't know. And you know but, how much of an enormous responsibility that is, too? Right. To be able to right. put something like that together, and really for the first time, putting something of that scale together. So I mean, you could say what you want about about Age of Ultron, but as far as the first Avengers movie goes. Joss Whedon put something together, and, and yeah, the architect, as far as I'm concerned, and, of the MCU. And I just want to say this to all the Marvel fans who are hard-killing Joss Whedon, stop. Because here's the thing. You do realize that the reason why he left wasn't because he said, you know what, I'm just going to leave. I mean, part of it, he said you know, it was just taxing on him and stuff like that. But Marvel, when it came to Age of Ultron, edited the hell out of it. And he's, I believe, gone on record and said... You know, it's not my movie. You know, it's like, I had my own version of the movie, but what was right. shown was not my movie. So, you know, don't quote me on that. But, I mean, it's just 
Marvel has had their hand too controlling in this. And, and here's the thing, too, is you got to realize for people who are saying, oh, why are you having him do a Batgirl movie? Well, have you seen Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Have you seen projects where he's had a female lead and how well right. he writes them? Exactly. He writes them very well. Yeah, and not only that, if if Buffy was so terrible, why are we talking about the 20th anniversary of right. it this year? We wouldn't care about it if, if it wasn't good. People love Buffy the Vampire Slayer, okay? So Joss Whedon knows how to write female leads. Of course, the source for this variety, by the way, and not only do we have Joss Whedon here, but, you know, of course, Jeff Johns is going to be involved in overseeing this, and John Berg as well. So now, while the ink's not dry yet, this is not a sealed deal. If you're DC... Even though the whole Marvel versus DC thing is stupid, we've agreed on that many, many times. If you're DC, though, aren't you kind of grinning a little bit about possibly being able to parade can, Joss Whedon on the stage you, at SDCC? Well, can you? Here's the thing. Can you imagine if, and I think this would happen, because, you know, I believe Justice League, I believe it's the end of Scott Snyder's deal we with, can only hope. with Warner Bros. We can only hope. Can you imagine if, if DC turned to Joss and said, hey, oh. <laughs> do you want to direct Justice League? Oh. Oh, Can you imagine man. if Joss, you know, again, I think DC, I think in DC, one thing we've seen from their movies, to be honest, I think we've seen at least some sort of freedom. I think they give, I would believe that DC and Warner Bros. gives their directors longer freedom and I longer say, leash in terms of editing and choice. Yeah. Based on Batman versus Superman, I'd say that's accurate. And who knows? Maybe that's part of it. We don't know. We're not in the room when they're negotiating his deal, but it could say, hey, when Zack's contract's up, you'll be in charge of Justice League. Now, of course, he'll be in ch- charge of running the the DCEU because, of course, our, our boy is running that. Right. And and so I just I, – you know, there's just endless possibilities with this. And I think with Batgirl, I'm going to say this. I don't think it's going to be just her. I, I think and I'm hoping this happens. I really am hoping that this turns out to be a Birds of Prey movie. Either that or maybe Dick Grayson's the secondary character in the Batgirl movie, which I know will piss people off, but you know what? If you don't think Batgirl can handle her own movie, you don't read Batgirl comics, okay? You have no idea anything about Batgirl. I mean, mean, and then going on to be Oracle, we've talked about how strong of a character Batgirl is in Barbara Gordon for a long, long time. This is to talk about something we talked about last week. This isn't Black Cat and Silver Sable. This is no. fucking Batgirl. No. Okay, this is somebody who can hold her own movie because there's, she's not attached really to anybody. You know, she's her own person. You know, her whole backstory isn't lined up. Like I was like Commissioner Gordon, really, her whole backstory really isn't lined up on anybody else. You know, it's it's, it's not dependent really on anybody else. But looking at what they what they want to do with this movie before we move on to our next story. I'm just excited for this because, to be honest, DC, I mean, you got Matt Reeves coming to do Batman, and now you got Joss Whedon. So here you have two directors who have done projects that have been widely successful. Mm -hmm. And so DC, I think, is kind of really getting their bearings, you know, under Jeff Johns, and they're finding their footing in terms of their cinematic universe. Look, if you uh, don't learn from your mistakes, you're damned to repeat them. And I think that Warner Brothers has found out that they made a mistake with Zack Snyder. I think that we all kind of already knew that. But, you know, sometimes you have to learn the hard way. So not only did they learn from their mistakes, 
they are upping the ante by getting, like you said, directors that have been wildly successful in projects that they've done to, to attach them to very meaningful things. And Batgirl can pay, play a much more meaningful role in the DCEU than a lot of people think she can. And speaking of somebody from play, who can play a meaningful role to somebody who might be playing too much of a role in a new movie, of course, that's Iron Man. And our next story, which is more trailer-based, is the new Spider-Man trailer that came out. And I will say this. When I saw this new trailer that came out this week, uh, it only confirmed my biggest fear, that Tony Stark, this whole story, is now revolved around Peter Parker. It's revolved around Peter Parker getting Tony Stark's approval. And that's my biggest fear, that this is not going to be a Spider-Man movie. This is going to be an Iron Man 4 movie. Not going to say that Tony Stark and Iron Man are going to be in every scene. However, I think the story is going to be deeply, deeply rooted in Iron Man and Tony Stark. There's a focal point here, and it's becoming more and more prominent in each trailer, in teaser trailer, in five-second clip that we get of Spider-Man Homecoming that Tony Stark slash Iron Man is going to play a huge, huge role in this. You know, we were talking about earlier in our review of Power Rangers how it was so great that Zordon and the the team themselves actually made each other earn the right to be Power Rangers. This situation, completely different. You shouldn't have to earn the respect of Tony Stark because... uh, I think he respects him a lot based on what happened on Cap- in Captain America Civil War. Otherwise, why, if you don't think he's ready, why call him up at all? And that's my point, too. He's like, oh, you're not ready. It's like you did recruit him to fight Captain America's team, and the kid took down Giant Man. So I think he's proven it himself to, for the most part. Now, I understand he's has powers for like about half a year or a year, but it's like, come on. And, and you know, I think... After you know, it's not like he's just got bit and now he's trying to find his way. He's had his powers for a while, so let him work on his stuff for a while. Let him be by himself. And when I saw this trailer, something that popped out to me too was going back to Civil War and Age of Ultron was, wait a minute, Tony Stark, you're responsible for Ultron, you're responsible for the whole dissolving with Captain America and everything else. Yet you're giving Peter Parker advice and telling him when he's not ready? Dude, you've almost ended the world twice in two two movies. Yeah, probably not the right guy that you want to get that kind of advice from. You're responsible for a lot of deaths in two movies. Yeah, but I mean, I, I get why he'd respect him, and I mean, he gave him the suit, and, you know, he needs that kind of father figure ish thing. I get that. I totally, totally get that. And he's just a kid. But at the same time, the, th- the other thing that bothers me, too, is that, and we, we've talked about this off the air, when he says, don't worry about the guy and the, the guy with the, mo- the monster guy, we, we'll, there's people that handle that. I'm like, wait a minute, don't, don't worry about the monster guy. You're, you're seriously going to go up to another superhero that has powers and tell him, don't worry about the monster guy. Somebody else will handle that. Why would anybody else handle that? And what? where the hell, and the, you actually touched on something. Uh, yeah. We were talking about it off the air that I want you to talk about as far as that goes as well. And it follows that that piece of dialogue that Tony Stark tells Peter Parker where, yeah, he talks about, you know, don't pay attention to the Wayne guy in the suit. Basically, there's other people that can handle this. And the next shot in the trailer is of Avengers Tower. And my first thought was, wait a minute, time out here. 
Throughout all these movies in the MCU, outside of Civil War, we have not seen another Avenger help out another Avenger. And, I mean, we have not seen anybody come and help, you know, with, with Winter Soldier we have, and Hydra and stuff like that to help Captain America. We haven't seen Iron Man do that or Hulk help him out or Thor or whomever. We haven't seen anybody help out Thor and his problem. Yeah, Dark World was kind of a big deal, and nobody helped Thor. And don't and don't tell me that the second Thor movie, oh, they couldn't have helped him out. No, because a lot of it, because it takes place, you know, part of it takes place on Earth, and the first movie took place entirely on Earth for the most part. So don't tell me that nobody could have helped him out. Same thing with Doctor Strange. I mean, they established that Doctor Strange was known in this universe, or at least Stephen Strange, right. and nobody, you know, when Dormammu's kind of wreaking havoc, nobody goes to help him with that either. Come on. And here's what I think is, is where Marvel is treading into really murky waters here. We're going to get Hulk and Thor and Ragnarok together, okay? We're going to get, of course, Spider-Man Iron Man together in Homecoming. So now Marvel has stepped into this position where going forward... You're not going to have standalone movies. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're going to have Black Panther in there, and in the Black Panther movie, of course, but you're going to probably have Captain America in there and Winter Soldier. Here's the other problem, too. Wait till you get, yeah, to the Black Panther movie. Wait till you get to a movie like Captain Marvel. And this is a character that absolutely, positively, 100% should be able to stand on her own. You're telling me... You're going to put an, possibly another Avenger in there and take that spotlight away from her. I know that you're getting to the point where you're getting lower on the totem pole for characters as far as solo movies are concerned. And I'm not saying that Captain Marvel is one of those. I think that her movie is long overdue. So I understand why you think that they might need help. You know, that little leg up like, well, everybody knows Tony Stark and Iron Man, so we'll put them in there. But it's Spider-Man doesn't need that help. It's one of those things where... To, to kind of piggyback what you just said with Captain Marvel, it's not really the thing that she needs help. It's one of those things where Marvel's like, okay, everybody needs to know everybody exists in this Marvel universe. We can't just wait for Avengers movies to happen. It's like, no, because you're taking away that standalone effort and that kind of character building. Like, yeah, we saw T'Challa and Black Panther in Civil War, but we didn't really learn about T'Challa and Black Panther. We didn't really learn about the whole Black Panther being passed down through generations and stuff like that through the royal family. You know, we're, we hope to get that in the movie, but it's going to be hard to kind of get that when you're kind of putting in two, three more Avengers in these movies where, you know, especially in kind of these quote-unquote origin films. And, you know, here's the thing too, is once you're doing this where, oh, other people know that these threats exist and we're going to, and we can help, you know, we can, oh, we can help them out. Okay, then every time a threat exists in some movie, no matter the size, you're going to have to have somebody that come out there and help. Because the moment you don't have Iron Man or Hulk or somebody come out and help somebody, then you're going to get people like us coming back and saying, wait a minute, why would Tony Stark help Spider-Man with Vulture and Shocker yeah. but not help, you know, whomever with this other threat that's bigger and it's a bigger name and they're one of their main threats? Okay, so if you're going to help, if Tony Stark's going to help Spider-Man with these two C-list, near-D-list villains, why isn't, you know, Black Widow or Hawkeye or whomever going to help out Doctor Strange when, with Baron Mordo, 
Who you know why why not? Yeah, and you know you can't have that. Here's the deal too. They they're really setting the bar low for villains in this Spider-Man movie. And I'm not saying Vulture's a bad villain, but look who you've still got on the table. You've got Doc Ock, you've got Green Goblin, you've got Carnage, you've got Craven the Hunter. Look at how much greater the threats are going to get in a next Spider-Man movie should they choose to I mean Scorpion and Mysterio I'll throw them in there as well as greater threats than Vulture. So I realize he'll be more experienced by then, but Dude, at this point, you're going to go, oh, you know what? You know those greater threats? You're on your own there, pal. Dude, Hydro Man and Chameleon are bigger threats than those two. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good point. Good point. Yeah, but I mean, overall, with this with this trailer, uh, again, that's what's my biggest fear, is that this whole thing is going to be rooted in in Tony Stark and just, you know, oh, I got to prove myself. It's like, listen, kid, I know I know. in the comics he looks at Tony Stark as a mentor thing. I know Tony Stark gives him the suit. But I think, just speaking as someone who's a big Spider-Man fan, when this is his first movie in the MCU, I want him to be by himself. Because, I, because you know, I don't want another Avenger being in there. Because then it's kind of, in a sense, kind of stops being all about Spider-Man. It stops being a Spider-Man movie for for. for for part of it and the story ends up not just being about peter parker and, and him working into his powers and that's the thing too is you can have peter learning about his powers and maturing without putting an avenger in there right not only that but i mean i realize that marvel thinks that sony really screwed things up with spider-man in the last couple of movies but that doesn't mean that this movie's not going to be successful without another Avenger in it. It's not like you're piggybacking some C-list hero that's way down on the list of Avengers. This is Spider-Man. Everybody knows Spider-Man, even going back to the Tobey Maguire movies, and even before that. This is Spider-Man, one of, if not the most recognizable character in the world, other than maybe Superman and Batman. And you mean to tell me that you really think you need to put Tony Stark and Iron Man in there to buffer this? To make people go see Spider-Man Homecoming? Come on. And our final story, James, goes to the video game realm and more or less the not the development of video games. However, it deals with more of the retailing of games. And GameStop, this is a big story, I think, because GameStop, outside of you know, your Walmarts and your Targets and your mass chains, GameStop really, I think, is... To be honest, the only big video game store that I can think of, you know, it used to be Funko Land back in the day, then it was EB, now it's GameStop, and, you know, now, even though their profits in terms of their collectibles are up 27%, that's not good for them because, guess what, they're closing up over 200 stores, 225 to be exact, worldwide, after... Basically, they've had 13.6% drops in their fourth quarter profits. Yeah, and they said they really took it on the chin in holiday sales as well. And I mean, there's this by, by multiple sources, and some sources say 100, others 150, others as high as you said. So the exact number, I think they said, is like to be between 2 per, two and 3% of its stores worldwide. You guys do the math. But you're absolutely right. And what's funny about this is that they say they took it on the chin in holiday sales, and yes, yeah, certain games underperformed and, and didn't perform as well as they thought they did. However, at the same time, GameStop's going to open up another 35 collectible line stores and 65 what they're calling technology brand stores, which is going to have you know mobile and wireless stuff in it and stuff like that. Yet, the gaming stores, you need to close that many? I mean, this is where you built your bread and butter, man. This is where... 
you got things moving and for some reason you feel like you can't all of a sudden compete with Amazon and Best Buy and Target and Toys R Us. And I think that that's more on them than than a byproduct of the big, bad, big box store. You know what I mean? I think part of it, there's was, was two reasons. And one, one we didn't really touch on at all. The first being that GameStop, I've had people have worked there. They, it sucks. I, you know, it, I've, you know, I'm not going to name names, but it was just wasn't the best management. It wasn't the best run. Uh, I've had people, friends of mine, who've gone in there and had terrible experiences in terms of customer service and everything else. Put me on that list. Put me on that list. Yep. Uh, I mean, I've heard stories about a guy who went into a GameStop, and because he didn't pre-order it, they literally opened the game and took out the code for like some sort of DLC or something like that because he didn't pre-order it. Dude, come on. Yeah. And... You know, here's the thing. Another thing that we haven't touched on yet is the fact that digital downloads, PlayStation yep. Store, Xbox Live, stuff like that. You know, you know, Microsoft Store and stuff like that. People will go and instead of saying, "Oh, I'm not going to get my car," and instead of driving my car and, and going to GameStop and having to deal with the hassle and stuff like that, I'm just going to buy my game online. Or you know what? Instead of, or you know what? Instead of having to deal with the long lines, I can just pre-order my game now in the PlayStation Store. And it'll download when, you know, with the codes and everything, all the DLC I get, supposed to get with it prior to pre-order, you know. Now, the only problem with that is PlayStations only have so much memory. I just right. literally, you know, I just got MLB 17, Major League Baseball, and I had to delete Resident Evil and another game, Final Fantasy, off my hard drive because it wouldn't fit. Here's the deal, man. Uh, digital downloads definitely a big part of it, but... When Amazon has a release day guaranteed delivery and you can just order it right off of Amazon and it gets shipped to your door, you don't have to go anywhere. And there's usually a lot of, you know, Amazon will offer some things with it too, like extra skins or depending on whatever the game is, maybe a DLC pack, whatever. If you pre-order, they'll give you something a little bit extra. So why am I going down to anywhere to get anything when I can have it delivered right to my door from Amazon? And, and not to get too businessy. But Target also reported losses in their holiday sales as well. They kind of took it on the chin in the holidays as well. That was probably for different reasons, though, that we won't get into on this show. But yeah. stores are losing money because it's so easy to order things. And, you know, we're, we're a society that we don't really – if we don't have to physically go do something, we won't. Like if this movie thing that we talked about before, if that happens, so many people will overpay for a movie just so they don't have to go to the movie theater. Yeah. So they don't have to leave and go anywhere. <laughs> we are in the Netflix society of everything is at the tip of our fingers. And if we don't have to leave the house to do anything, we're not gonna. Well, I mean, here's the thing, too. Anytime you don't have to put on pants is a good time. Right. I mean, wouldn't you rather sit there and whatever you're deciding to wear while you're playing the show there and then knowing your next game is on the way because you pre-ordered it and it's going to be mailed to you and delivered on exactly the release date? Yeah, I mean, and, and that's the thing is, you know, to bring in the whole collectibles, to bring in, you know, uh, I believe they partnered with ThinkGeek, so they got some shirts that they sell now at stores. And, you know, you mentioned the whole mobile aspect. And it's kind of like we're seeing this kind of transition, kind of like a, a Best Buy in, in, a, in a Circuit City transition, where it's like, you know, people aren't buying DVDs anymore. I remember, like, Best Buy or, or uh, GameStop used to have, like, uh, a, a movie stop, yep. and and uh, but nobody really buys DVDs anymore because Netflix and because of Redbox and stuff like that. And it's possible, you know, getting new release movies. You know, 
20 days after they're out. You know, it's like I can watch Power Rangers for $30 in my apartment, yep. and, you know, 30 days after it's out. And it's, again, it's that comfort society we live in. And, you know, now that I think what's going to happen is I don't think that game stops are going to go away because people are always going to want that physical copy no matter what. And some people, you know, don't have the patience. You know, we live in a I need it now society. So whether you do live down the street or whatever, I think people would, you know, just take the time to possibly drive and pick it up. Because the thing is, too, is, again, talking about when I had to delete, you know, my, I don't have much space in my hard drive. So I have to delete certain games and to have to spend $60 on a game and then delete it, you know, and, and, and have it gone forever. Basically it, it sucks. It really sucks. And yeah, but that's and, why you started buying physical copies again. So yeah. well, well, the reason why I bought the physical copies again is because I love when I had my PlayStation two, I loved having that huge library. It was like, you know, it's kind of like beauty and the beast and, Beast has that huge library of books. Yep. You know, I had I want to have that bookshelf of games. You know, that's so, me and my Blu-ray collection. I still buy Blu-rays because I want that physical copy. I, I, right. I want to see it on my shelf. I want to hold it in my hand. I, I need that comfort level. I guess is the best way to describe it. Right, and and I think that you know overall, I think that uh, GameStop. I don't think they're going to be gone. I don't think they're going to go away the of Best Buy or or Circuit City or Media Play no, or anything like no, that. No, no, no. They need a shift in strategy just overall for sure because I think that the the somewhere along the line the cool factor of the midnight release of a game went away. Doesn't even matter what the game is. I mean, remember when it used to be like a spectacle? They actually seemed like they used to care. And I'm sure some locations still do, but by and large, especially in my experience and things I've seen and people that I've talked to, that cool factor is gone. It's it's almost like okay, here, take your shit and get out kind of thing. It's not even a, a it's not a spectacle anymore and it should be. And speaking of spectacle, James, a movie that's out right now in theaters is Ghost in the Shell. We have one of its stars, Chin Han, who plays Tagusa, is going to be joining us to talk everything Ghost in the Shell, the anime, the manga, and more. And that's coming up next on the Down Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Wynn Everett, and I'm from Marvel's Agent Carter, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, one of the movies we've been most excited about for a while now is Ghost in the Shell finally coming to live action, and we finally have somebody on the show to talk about it. He's going to be playing Tagusa in the film. It's Chin Han. Man, how you doing? I am very well, James and Nick. i um, been uh, getting ready for the press junkets and uh, getting ready to meet all the uh, crew again. I, I've missed them. You know, I haven't seen them since uh, we were shooting in uh, Hong Kong and New Zealand all of last year. So looking forward to the reunion. I mean, I'm sure it's been kind of a whirlwind for you. As a matter of fact, you've had a lot of great roles. I mean, you've been Lao in The Dark Knight, which is arguably like the best superhero movie of all time. So genre-wise, how would you kind of categorize Ghost in the Shell? And do you think it has that greatest of all time potential? Well, it comes from, I think you have to look at Ghost in the Shell in the context of, uh, you know, the canon, because there's just so much of it, you know, in so many different, in so many different iterations. You have the manga, which is the, the granddaddy of them all, and then you have these anime movies, and then you have these TV shows like the standalone complex, you know, and the rise. So, I mean, in the context of, uh, in the context of the canon, I think, the Ghost in the Shell canon it is one of the all-time greats. I mean, we just hope that you know the movie will be a worthy addition to the uh, you know to the existing body of work. 
uh, I think the filmmakers, um, the directors, the writers, the actors, you know, we're all taking great pains to recreate the spirit of the films. It's not iconic scenes even, you know, that, that we know the fans will love and, and also that people new to it, just coming to it, will also uh, enjoy and appreciate. You know. And, you know, Chen, speaking of canon, over the years, several people have voiced Tagusa in various Ghost in the Shell projects, but you're the first to bring him to life in a live-action setting. So what was that feeling like arriving on set the first day, knowing you were about to do something that really nobody else has done in the franchise's history? <laughs> uh, there is, yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, first, when when you get cast in something like that, I mean, it's, it starts with, you know, exhilaration, right? And then that slowly changes into terror, and, uh, <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and, then, and then when you get on set, you know, it's like you're, you're you know, you're, you're just, uh, you just surrender to the process, you know? So w- when we got on set, I think the most important thing was to capture the spirit of the character of Tokusa, you know, in terms of design. And, uh, you know, we, we, we needed to get the look right for the live action movie in terms of, uh, you know, costuming and uh, hair and, and makeup and, and, you know, accessories and stuff. So I think that was the, that was the first thing that we needed to get right. And, you know, you, you will be surprised at how many, Varieties of mullets you can actually get, you know. <laughs> so, you know, it's a tricky thing. You know, it's a very nuanced thing. I mean, people, people think, oh, it's just a mullet, right? It's not just a mullet. You know, it's, it's uh, never it's just a, a mullet. It's you know, you have to decide on you know how how big a party you want to have at the back. You know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Things you want to have, you know, whether neo romantic or neo you know, classical or, you know, I mean, it's, it's all very, it's all very interesting, you know, and so we, we thought that, I think, you know, we, we, we managed to capture the spirit of that, but the costumes were very interesting as well. I think we needed to get that retro futuristic kind of look. So we were going for the, the, the suits that were of a different era, you know, with the high waisted totally. pants, you know, he kind of looks like a detective and he comes from the police department, right? I mean, he's different from the rest of them because, he comes from the police and everyone else comes from the military. So we had to find the, uh, you know, we had to find the right suit for him. And also, you know, I mean, you, you, you'll be surprised at, you know, how many varieties of skinny ties you, you know, are, are out there as well. You know, how skinny, how wide, you know, and what kind of knot you're going to use for the character. All this stuff just goes into the, you know, goes into the consideration for the character. But most importantly, I think, this was the thing that, that really helped me get into the character, and that was when we were trying to find a watch for a Togusa, and Rupert and myself and Kurt and Bart, who were the costume designers, we managed to find this Casio calculator watch from the 80s. Oh, wow. <laughs> right? And, and he wears it in the movie. I mean, I, I hope you can see it at some point. I mean, maybe on IMAX you'll be able to see a glimpse of it, but uh, that was that was a that was really fun. Uh, I you know I wanted one after after we wrapped. I wanted to get myself one. I, I imagine you sitting in the makeup chair and they're giving you their, your mullet and like okay, what do you? How big of a party? You're like, let's go Animal House, you know, Delta party <laughs> in the back. And you're like, okay, <laughs> as little Billy Ray Cyrus as possible. Please. <laughs> Let's just not go there. But uh, one of the other things that we know about Tagusa that actually sets him apart 
is that he's a family man. So that obviously makes him different from his fellow Section 9 members. So how does that kind of factor into his mindset? Well, it's interesting because uh, he's the only one who's not, you know, he's not as cyber, he's not cybernetically enhanced like the rest of them, right? He's the most human of the bunch, and he has a family. So what that it raises stakes for for him, right? What that means is that you know, whenever he goes into a, uh, a case or when they are cyber terrorists, he has to fight smarter in a way because he doesn't have the he doesn't have the you know the physical brute strength that Bato has or Saito or Boma. You know, I mean, they're, they're just all bigger and and stronger. So he has to be more nimble and and, you know, rely on his wits a bit more. So that changes the way he deals with matters and, you know, where his intuition becomes a lot more uh, important for, you know, for, for the cases. And, you know, speaking of his physical style, you know, one of the reasons why Major re- recruits Tagusa into Section 9, of course, is because he's a top-notch detective. So looking at his mindset and just his mind how he is in the field, how would you best describe his style and methods when being a detective in the field? Uh, he is very uh, methodical. He's very uh, uh, analytical, but he also allows for human error and human unpredictability. That's why he's so useful to the group because he factors, you know, um, the the humanness of of the crime. Uh, into the equation, so that you know um, he he would figure things out in a different way, or he would say, "Hey, wait a second, I think we can trace the hack this particular way." You know, old school, you know, with wires and stuff, and and so he's like a <laughs> he's like a futuristic MacGyver. But the thing is, he's, uh, <laughs> he's, he's, he's you know he has to be the voice of reason in in a way. You know, I, I think he just slows everything down. He just has to you know, kind of piece it together, whereas, you know, everyone else is is cybernetically enhanced and and just, you know, much more powerful than he is. Absolutely. We're talking to Chin Han, who's playing Tagusa and Ghost in the Shell, which is in theaters right now. Now, Chin, we were talking about how he's the least enhanced member of the Section Mm -hmm. 9 team. So I got to ask you, if you could have one cybernetic enhancement, what would it be, or is all natural just the way to go? Well, if this were a family show, <laughs> I would totally love to have a uh, cybernetic liver. Oh, <laughs> nice! Because it would be happy hour all day long. <laughs> no repercussions. Just line them up, knock them down. No regrets. Here we go. <laughs> and yeah, Jim, I think, yeah, I think that, that would be it. And Chin, Section 9 is all about business and catching bad people, but there must have been some times where a little hilarity ensues amongst its members, so what was the funniest or weirdest thing to happen on set while filming? Well, you know, I think it's, it's so much time is spent, uh, I wouldn't say it's exactly on set, but, you know, I mean, so much time is spent in the makeup chair, right? I mean, because there's a lot of prosthetics and for, right. you know, for people like Kilu, who plays Bato, and, and we are like, buddies on and off set and we you know our makeup chairs right next to each other and for him you know with the with the incredible you know prosthetic eyes that you know he's in the chair for four hours like there, like way before me 
and I show up and obviously it takes time, you know, for me to bring that mullet to life. And, uh, and so we would be exchanging very strange, uh, videos, uh, <laughs> with each other <laughs> while, while we are, you know, while we are getting our makeup done because it's like hours. Right? So I think my favorite would be, uh, hamster eating a burrito. I think. <laughs> Every morning I'll come in and I'll be like, Pilo, do you want to see a hamster eat a burrito? And I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, th- two months later, I think it gets a little stale. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That's so crazy. I mean, looking looking back at the filming again, like you were talking about earlier, and finally bring, being a part of bringing this to live action, Ghost in the Shell, what do you think will kind of surprise people the most when they finally see the movie? I think it's the world that has been created, right? I mean, I think... Uh, when you, what you've seen in the trailers and in the future that is the world that you know the filmmakers have created. I think Rupert and and the production designer Jan Rolfs and and Jeff Hall, who is the DP on it. I, I the the thing is the futuristic world that has been created is so unlike anything you've ever seen before. The scale of it is so large, and in terms of the uh, you know it's so multi layered and multi textured in terms of a you know, in terms of design, uh, you can actually freeze frame, I think, any, you know, at any point in the movie, take out that frame, and it'll look like a piece of art, because uh, that's how detailed it is. So, what I think people will get a real kick out of are the, uh, is the, is, you know, is the world that we've created, because the city itself is one of the characters in the movie, right? It's, the city itself becomes one of the characters in the movie. Uh, so I think that 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 is cool. And then the other thing is all the iconic scenes uh, that people love. You know, the the water fight, uh, the opening sequence, the uh, jump off the building with the thermotic suit, uh, and uh, and also shelling sequence. What we call the shelling sequence is just how she's put together. Now, of course, I don't want to give too much away, but the ending is just the ending is just stunning. The people, for the fans of the movies, I think they're going to be able to recognize all these uh, iconic uh, scenes. And uh, there are also references to not just the movie, Oshi's movie, there are also references to standalone complex. There's some things from the rise, there's some things from the manga. And I think it'll be a lot of fun for people to just, you know, pick out uh, Easter eggs and, and stuff. I think people will be talking about that uh, for a bit. And, and, you know, Chin, before we get you out of here, in many action and sci-fi movies, certain characters, of course, have their signature weapons. So for Tagusa, it's his simple yet very archaic Mateba auto revolver. So what do you makes his auto revolver so unique when compared to other famous guns like you have Han Solo's Blaster and also the Ghostbusters' proton packs? Well, the, the, uh, he's kind of like the uh, Dirty Harry of the Bunch, right? I mean, the thing about the... Mateba is that, yeah, you know, he, he can't get off as many rounds as uh, Major can, or, you know, or, or it's not as, it's not like a cannon that, this big cannon of gun that Bulmer carries, or the sniper sniper rifle that Saito carries, but what he does is, uh, I mean, the weapon is easily concealed, the, the weapon is not, uh, you know, it doesn't jam, you know, it's reliable. It's more analog than digital. So, I mean, it, it is, it has that kind of, uh, you know, old school kind of 
feel and reliability. I think that's that's what sets it apart from everything else in that world. Well, I think the fans cannot wait to see Ghost in the Shell in theaters right now because it's been a long time coming to get this movie in live action. We can't wait to see you bring Tagusa to life. It's Chin Han. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you, James. Nick. Well, James, it's been so many years we've waited between the anime and the manga and just a couple of thing, other projects that came out with it and for it. Ghost in the Shell is finally here in live action. And you know it's crazy because you kind of feel like, well, how has it taken this long right. to do this? But at the same time, you're like, okay, the technology is right. The, the genre is kind of hotter than ever. This is really the time to do this. And we were talking to Chin off the air, and I just said, you know, I go, how I'm a big cinematography fan. And I'm just like, when I first saw the trailer and the shelling sequence, I'm like, wow, they got the same exact angles, the same exact depth. As a, in the live action version, as the anime version, like it really, it's beautiful, and it really shows that everybody involved, from the director of photography to the director to the actors, everybody really cares about this, this this product and this film that they're doing, and the property itself because you know they have so much respect for it, and just wow, like they, the fact that they just say you know we need to have these exact touches on it, or else it won't feel authentic, and they really did that. This is a film. That really looks authentic to its predecessors. And if you are if you haven't seen the movie yet and you're saying, well, which way are they going to go with this? I mean, he kind of told you that they're right. drawing things from very, very different parts of the anime and the manga as well. So it's like you're going to get a little bit of everything that you want. And we kind of have a clearer path now if you haven't seen it yet, but you're a fan of the of the property, of kind of where they're going to go with this. So that should, I think, put your mind at ease. And what also puts your mind at ease, too, is you know, when I asked in that first question of arriving on set and knowing you're the first person to bring Tagusa to life in live action, you know, was it like, and he talked about how there was some pressure there and stuff. And, yeah. And, but knowing <laughs> Chin Han, seeing his past work, I know he's going to, he's just going to nail it. Like, he's going to be awesome in it. And, I mean, I'm just excited for just the visuals itself. I'm just excited. I've never been as excited for a movie as I have Ghost in the Shell in a long time. And, I mean, it's just, I, I, I just think that technically it's one of the most technically beautiful movies of all time as well. And, and I think that that's why it can have that potential yeah. to jump into that greatest of all time category that Chin just kind of happens to be around, right. you know, every right. now and then. So, I mean, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, of course, our spoiler-filled review of Ghost in the Shell going to be coming next week. We want to give you a chance to see the movie, digest it, before we review it for you. And see it again, of course, as oh, well. Of course, yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> but that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. And thanks to Chin Han. Also, I want to give a big shout-out to Paramount yes, Pictures as well. Yes. This is our first time working with a major studio, promoting something. And just huge thank you to the folks over at Paramount who believed in us and said, you know what, we're going to have you guys come and work beside us in promoting this. So thank you so much to Paramount. It's such an honor to... to it be working with a great studio is Paramount Pictures. Absolutely. I mean, and they've been very, very supportive throughout the entire process. Right. And, I mean, here's the many more, guys. Exactly. And, hey, if you want more of us online during the week, be sure to hit us up, facebook.com slash downandnerdy. We're also on Twitter at downandnerdy757. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch. All at Merc with one arm. The one is spelled out. Mr. Witham, where can they find you? I think I feel like, feel like I need to go old school and like get a billboard on a highway somewhere. <laughs> well, you're, 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 so you're like, you're like Tagusa. Tagusa has his old archaic revolver. That is you're true. You're like, you know what? Nick's got his futuristic, you know, uh, cybernetic 
apps and everything else. I'm going to go old school and put a billboard or maybe even something in the yellow pages. I might not have a cybernetic brain, but I do have a Twitter page. It's at James Ace <laughs> with them. That's W-I-T-H-A-M on Twitter. And, of course, find out all the stuff, though, at downandnerdypodcast.com and everything about Ghost in the Shell. We'll post a bunch of stuff up there as well. All the comics we reviewed this week and even more written reviews on our website right now, downandnerdypodcast.com. And as always, practice safe, comic greeting, and always bag and board your comics.